Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up this week, they might be giants. They're being interviewed by my friend and our correspondent, Jordan Morris. Jordan co-hosts my other show, Jordan Jesse Go. He's also a lifelong TMBG fan. At the heart of They Might Be Giants, there are two Johns, John Flansburg and John Linnell. The two singer-songwriters have been writing and recording together since 1982. They're in their 40th year. 40. In that time, the band has released 22 albums, won two Grammys, and have cultivated a fan base that is passionate, fun-loving, and yes, a little nerdy. They released the first ever download-only record. They ran a hotline where fans could call to hear demos of songs they were working on. Their newest project, Book, is a book, and it's also a record called Book. They Might Be Giant's sound can be a little hard to pinpoint. On some albums, it's abstract and goofy. Istanbul was Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, now Constantinople, been a long time gone. Constantinople, now it's Turkish delight on a moonlit night. Every gal in Constantinople lives in Istanbul, now Constantinople, so if you a date in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in Istanbul. Even and sometimes it's broody, melancholic power pop, like on this song, Anna Ng. Where the world goes by like the humid air And it sticks like a broken record Everything sticks like a broken record Everything sticks until it goes away And the truth is we don't know anything They might be giants. Welcome to Bullseye. Thank you, Jordan. The art book that accompanies your new album, Book, both of which I loved, by the way, both the album and the book of Book are both fantastic. Um, the art book is made up of, um, it's a lot of things, but it's a lot of photos kind of in and around New York City. And it kind of got me thinking about the New York City that the band started in uh, uh, back in the 80s. Um I'd like to hear more about kind of that New York and specifically if you can remember like the first venues you guys played. Sure. Yeah. Well, we, we, um, I guess now I always forget. Was it Dr. B's was the first indoor venue that Dr. we played? Dr. B's in? was the first place we played as they might be giants, I guess. Yeah. Right. And that was in, that was in Soho, um, back when it was a less expensive neighborhood. Um, so there were these little closety sized clubs. Because uh, there was another one that we played in around the same time, uh, which was Green something. <laughs> I'm forgetting. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking of Green Street Station, which was no, in, no, I was in Boston. Was, yeah, 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 yeah. There was another one that was that had the name I can't remember. It was had Green. This is before we kind of migrated over to the to the East Village. We were we were sort of trying to figure out where we could do our thing, and we we'd experimented with getting booked at the showcase night at CBGB, which was um, a kind of purgatory, it turned out. It seemed it seemed like a dream come true at first. And then it 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 ultimately didn't seem like it was enough of a personal scene for us. Or I guess in in the fullness of time we realized like when we started playing in these East Villagey places that it was really 
a much more friendly and groovy scene for us that we, you know, we, we made friends with the people who frequented those places. We had people other than our own fans coming to see us. Uh, and, and we were playing with a bunch of other, it was actually performance artists in, in those, those kinds of places. Um, so, so the thing with Dr. B's was we just send out invitations and people who we knew came to see us and nobody, nobody else who was there who happened to be in there was particularly interested in what we're doing. And, uh, you know, it was, it just felt a little bit weird and alien and, and we were, we were not very confident in what we were yeah. doing. I mean, I th- when I think back on those gigs, I think we, I mean, I think it was before the idea of pay to play was invented, but these were essentially kind of showcasey places. Yep. Yep. And, uh, I remember there, we did one show where as we were loading out, we were the last people in the room for the band that was playing on stage. Mm-hmm. And that when we left, we would there would be no one. Yeah, and, that was a that, typical kind of scene. Yeah, that felt kind of bad. Can you remember the time when you knew that They Might Be Giants was going to be like more like a job and less like a hobby or an art project? Oh, that's an interesting question. We, you know, we had a bunch of discussions as in the sort of between like 82 and I guess like 88, 89, the band was definitely just kind of like a weekender project for us. I mean, we rehearsed, we lived, we shared in a, an apartment for a, a, a big chunk of that time and we rehearsed every night and, and poured a lot of energy into sort of the abstract idea of the band. But I remember having conversations about how we didn't want this to become our job, you know, that we didn't want to rely on the band to pay the rent because that meant you'd have to do gigs you didn't want to do, which was kind of an interesting, I mean, I don't think we were really thinking about how how much success we would need to kind of escape (laughs) the gravitational pull of, you know, New York City rent. Obviously, you you two are very funny people and they might be giants is a a funny band that uses a lot of like funny how humor. jordan what what do you uh, mean funny next question oh boy <laughs> uh but what i was getting at was i think something that maybe casual listeners uh don't automatically get is that um you know there's kind of a salty sweet element to they might be giants where Kind of in these kind of <laughs> I fun thought you and could, you, I thought you were going to say there's there's an unfunny part of they might be <laughs> yeah well, I think that's that just, I think that is what you said actually you know it, and I, I, I don't disagree it, it I mean, kind I of think is that, a little bit and I think that in a lot of songs there are these kind of serious topics and these like characters who are dealing with some like very very real <laughs> and I think a great example of that on the new album is uh, I can't remember the dream I can't remember. Dream that I had last night, but I woke with delight and excitement. And then, when I tried to remember the dream that I had last night, it was gone. But the feeling I had in the dream stayed on. I'd love to hear about that kind of this particular song and kind of like some of the emotional stuff that's happening in it, and then just in general, you know, how you kind of go about putting this more serious stuff into right. you know, that's songs a, well, that's where a, you might not expect it. Yeah, it's a good question because I don't know if we, I would say I necessarily uh, can articulate the process, but just off the top of my head, I think that song and a lot of the songs we write begins with this sort of nugget of an idea which is encapsulated in the chorus. And it's like a country music, 
you know, formula where you, you, you think of a phrase and then everything else gets wrapped around that. So in this case, it's like, what does that mean? I can't, I can't remember the dream, and and uh, it's obviously whatever it was. It left me feeling like it's better than my real life. You know, that's the entire concept. And then maybe from that, you can choose to dial up the bleakness of the, you know, the narrative. So there are some TMBG songs that are. Um that are kind of these um, like formally kind of these like traditional guitar, bass, drum, keys, pop rock songs. But then, yeah. um, you know, there's some that are more experimental. And uh, on this record, um, there's one I love called I Lost Thursday. And it has all this really um, kind of unexpected instrumentation and all these kind of unexpected sounds that come in. There's all this um, like really wild percussion in it that kind of comes out of nowhere. And, a kind of robot monster voice that has uh, <laughs> been very fun to uh, imitate to my cat. It's supernatural how space that we can be. It's supernatural how space that we can be. I left I, I'd love to hear about kind of this song and and kind of how you decide what's going to be more traditional and what's going to be more experimental. I mean, I think John and I have, from the very beginning, have done this a certain, a, a bunch of different kind of creative handoff things, not unlike the Postal Service, where we might write, I mean, we've written songs in the same room at various times, but a lot of the collaboration we've done has been kind of long distance. John gave me, uh, like, literally, I think it was, I think it was a MIDI file of various keyboard parts, and it, and it had like a, you know, what you might assume is like a verse chorus bridgey structure um but it didn't have like a ton more going on than that and i just i spent a long time just trying to find keyboard sounds that would make all the sections kind of stand out from one another and it's actually it's one of those things where i think when you're kind of coming into somebody else's creative output and working as an editor you can actually see it in a very different way than I mean, I mean, even though like I sang over the track and 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 you know put that part of the song together, um, I think one of the reasons why the song is has got so many kind of hard left turns is because I could sort of feel where it could go in terms of the keyboard textures. And one of the nice things about working with computers is like you can really radically change that stuff up. And then the you know the, and of course the the monster voice stuff comes last. <laughs> More with They Might Be Giants after the break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Odoo. Is your old software making it impossible to keep up with demand? Then it's time to switch to Odoo. Odoo is a suite of business applications designed to streamline, automate, and simplify any company. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, inventory, manufacturing, sales, accounting, you name it, Odoo's got you covered. So 
Stop wasting time and start getting stuff done with Odoo. For a free trial, go to odoo.com slash bullseye. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our guests are They Might Be Giants. The Grammy Award-winning duo of John Flansburg and John Linnell have just recorded their 23rd album. It's called Book. The album also comes with a 144-page book, also called Book. Book, the book, features original photography from New York photographer Brian Carlson and lyrics from the band. Interviewing They Might Be Giants is Bullseye correspondent Jordan Morris. Let's get back into their conversation. You two kind of, you work together and separately, and you, you both still kind of share the songwriting duties and They Might Be Giants. Um, I'd like to hear from Linnell what makes a good Flansburg song and from Flansburg what makes a good Linnell song. Okay, well, um, I'll start. Uh, I am always bowled over by Flansburg's lyrical twists and turns. And um, I think that's the part that like, I kind of know when he sends me a, you know, like a demo, like when I'm clicking it, I'm like, what's about to happen? And it's usually the lyrics that are the thing that um, uh, are blowing my mind, I would say. Um, So, I mean, that's, that's, you know, I think John and I have a similar sensibility with music writing. Um, and there, there's differences in certain stylistic things, um, but um, I wish I wish I could write lyrics like like John does. I, I always feel like that for me is the hardest part, and uh, and uh, I don't know what kind of agony he goes through writing lyrics. Um, I, I don't get to experience his his pain uh, the way I experience my own. But I find lyric writing really, really sometimes just. It's just like, I'm glad when I'm done, you know, <laughs> like I'm happy when I've done it. And then, but that's the only pleasure um, uh, that comes with it. I, I love writing music, but I, I kind of hate writing lyrics. Well, lyrics do seem like they get harder, like the the older you get, especially yeah. like it doesn't, it doesn't help writing a lot of lyrics before, you know. No, it, well, it actually- I've, ne- I've never been able to do that. I, I, I've, I literally never, never write the, li- or very, very rarely write lyrics first. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, like it doesn't help write, having written songs before to write more songs. Like I don't. I, I mean, oh, well, I see what you're I, saying. I, maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like, like I feel. You know, some sometimes I feel like I, I fully want to just reclaim, like old ideas again. You know, like just say, like, okay, I, you know, I know I've written a song like this before. I mean, maybe you know, I guess lots of writers get into kind of their mannerist period where they just. Don't don't worry about stuff like that. But sure. Um, but um, you know, I, I have to say, like, um, you know, one of the weird things about being in a band for thirty five years is a lot of times people ask you like what the secret for being in a band for thirty five years is, and I have to say, I think the fact that John can write a really compelling rock song is is actually kind of the is kind of like the secret weapon of they might be Giants because. I don't think I don't think we would have been able to get through the world as it is if we weren't in some way re- really a rock band and that's not that's not having a, an identity in a, in the world of rock music is kind of hard and um it's also kind of limited and I think that you know really from the jump like working on songs like 
uh, you know, Don't Let's Start and Anna Ang. They're like really guitar driven songs in a certain way. And it's great. It's really fun to be in like a band where you get kind of get handed these, you know, you know, great ideas and great parts and you can kind of just do it. And uh, it's, it's, you know, that, I mean, to me, that's, that's kind of the sort of exceptional thing about They Might Be Giants. I think on, you know, on paper, I don't think people think about like, oh, like, oh, They Might Be Giants, they're a good rocking band. But I, but, you know, just speaking as the guitar player in the band, I think that that has been very helpful for us. Yeah, I think that's, I think that is a thing that our, our live audience would probably chime in with, because generally that's kind of the vibe of like, I don't even completely recognize us in the descriptions of our live shows that we hear from from the audience, which is they're saying like, yeah, they really rock the place. I'm like, wow, I never even consider rocking a place. Like that's that's <laughs> I, obviously there's some somebody is feeling it, but but to me it's like I don't even know how to describe the process exactly. But um, but it, yeah, it's great. It's obviously why people come to see us perform is is um, partly like the actual live event. Um, I guess what it is, is we're doing the live show over and over again. So I'm just kind of accustomed to that experience. Um, and it doesn't seem that crazy. It seems normal. Uh, I would love to talk a little bit more about the book that accompanies the album book. Um, uh-huh. The uh, the photos, the beautiful photos in book are by a photographer named uh, Brian Carlson. Um yeah, I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you got in contact with him and why you thought his work was, uh, you know, something that would accompany your work. Well, one of the great things about like the last 10 or 15 years of being in They Might Be Giants is so we've been collaborating really uh, head on with this fellow named Paul Sayre, who's a, a very uh, successful graphic designer, graphic artist. And um, he is really connected to that world of uh, New York um, designers. And a friend of his is is a photographer, I think teaches photography and knew about Brian's work. Brian actually went to the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, which is where I went to art school. And um, so we were looking at different portfolios and, you know, the whole book project was really in in collaboration with Paul as the designer art director of the thing and as we were talking about it it just it sort of dawned on us that it would really be beautiful if we could find one photographer who could just had you know had a a, a big enough scope of work that it could support a whole folio of uh, a book and uh, and Brian's work is that you know I mean it's it's sort of a strange uh, it's a strange testament the whole project is kind of a strange testament to the COVID moment and and just long distance collaborations in general I've still never met Brian which is super weird I, I've you know I've I've like FaceTimed with him which is you know interesting but it's like I I feel strange talking about him because in a, in a, some other essential way I don't even know who he is but I know his work really well now um and there was something about I mean street photography is always kind of interesting it's a little bit voyeuristic in a way but you know if it's if it's done well it doesn't feel like exploitation and um 
I think the fact is, like, the truth about They Might Be Giants as, like, you know, the way we approach what we're doing, I think, in general, is, like, there's a lot of unreliable narrators. So, like, there's kind of an uh, a real overlap between the impulses of, like, street photography and the impulses in our songs. Like, our songs are kind of... They're not. They're not first-person singular songs. They're not diary entry songs. They're not like about our, our personal emotional revelations. They're really about kind of about characters. Even you know, even if you know we're saying something about ourselves, it's it's like there's something vaguely uh, theatrical about it. So it's like uh, I don't know. It, it, his work seemed to kind of echo something in 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 what we're doing that that really made sense. And so you know we. We approached him about doing it, and you know, and he was he was very into it. So the whole the whole thing is is uh, you know been kind of a a glorious love fest miracle. In uh, in next year in twenty twenty two, you guys have a a tour planned after um, yeah some time of not being on tour, um, and I guess a part of this tour is you are going to play. I, I, I think the entirety of your 1990 album Flood. Um, yeah, well, it was this weird thing happened, which is that there was an interval of time when we were planning this tour where we were actually between albums. It was we had not finished the album that is coming out right now, and but we were going to go back out on the road, so we were just thinking like. Well, what can we do if we don't if we're not touring behind a new album? And we thought, oh well, well, it's the 30th anniversary of Flood, and um, we'll just celebrate that, and that'll be a huge crowd pleaser anyway. So we'll just try that out. And of course, it was like a huge success. I mean, we've really avoided a lot of the sort of low hanging fruit of being like a, a nostalgia, whatever you call it, like a legacy act. I guess is the term that people call it. And like, and but people have been doing this thing. We play full albums a lot of times when we're playing a second night in some city. So we've done lots of flood shows before. Um, and we even have done it in various different ways. We've done it like in reverse order. We've done it mixed into a set. Um, but that was for 2020 and it's been rescheduled three, <laughs> three times now. So we're just, uh, we're just rolling with the changes, man. Um, what is it about flood that you think, um, makes it so special to people because I think it is a very special album to a, a lot a lot of people I've you know we, we've we've had to kind of consider this because obviously we we like all our records and and I feel much closer to the stuff we've done in the last 30 years um <laughs> uh, but but there is obviously something about flood that really connected with people and I think at that time what it seemed like was that we had fully, you know, we had two indie albums uh, up until that point, and we'd, we'd really kind of established what it is we were doing, and it was a, a kind of a more fleshed out, kind of high, I mean, I hate to say this, but kind of a high-end version of this indie thing that we've been doing. And we had this monster uh, corporation promoting us for the first time. We were signed to, to Warner Electra, and so we had all this international distribution and... uh you know, just this giant machine of a, a record company to promote this thing. Um, so, you know, it was this confluence of everything. I, I think, and I hate to say this, but there is a thing about bands when they're starting out where they often have a kind of an initial explosion of creativity that 
it sort of ramps up in our case to the third album. There was a kind of a third album sort of focusing of everything that we were doing. And we knew exactly what we wanted to do. We, we, um, yeah, it was, I, I mean, so in that sense, yeah, it was kind of this lucky, lucky confluence. And like I said, if I look at everything we've done up until now, it's to me, it's the work of like a much more uh, juvenile couple of guys. So it's, it's, I can't completely identify with that album like the way I do with the last, maybe the last 10 years in particular, the stuff we've been doing, or I would say the last 20 years in a way, I feel like very much closer to that stuff. Um, uh, you know, we, we've obviously had a, we've lived a long, long time since we came out with Flood. Um, but I remember the excitement of that time as well. And, and this sort of partly the excitement of having all this, this, um, all these resources that we hadn't fully had up until then. We were able to record in a fancier studio and we weren't kind of cutting corners the way we had been doing, uh, economically up until then. We've got so much more to get into with They Might Be Giants. We kicked off the interview with a classic from the band, Anna Ng. When we come back from the break, have They Might Be Giants heard the crust punk ska version of that hit song? Well, we're going to play it for them. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Airbnb. If you've ever thought about hosting, you might have a few questions. What's it like? Where do I store my stuff? Is hosting worth it? Now, with Ask a Superhost, you can get free one-on-one help from Airbnb's most experienced hosts. Whether you're curious how to get started or just wondering if it's right for you, you can now ask someone who's already hosting. Learn more at airbnb.com slash askasuperhost. We've all made mistakes in book club, right? You drink a little too much, you don't actually read the book, and if you're under the bubble in Fairhaven, your individual will get subsumed by the collective. Hey, maybe I just let him go and whip us up some guac. We do not require guac. We require only nutrients and expansion. You will become book club. You will eat, pray, and love with us. Join book club. Bubble. The sci-fi comedy from MaximumFun.org. Just open your podcast app and search for Bubble. This is Spolzai. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Jordan Morris's conversation with John Flansburg and John Linnell, the co-founders and frontmen of the band They Might Be Giants. I was also really excited to read that this tour is going to feature some selections from uh a They Might Be Giants album that I love called Mink Car. Oh, that's nice. Thank and, you. And it it it's described on the uh, website as a a lost album, and I had no <laughs> idea that it that it had this history. Um, yeah, I'd I'd love to hear about what you're excited about playing off Mink Car and how how it became a lost album. I I just didn't know that. We're right. excited about knowing how to play the songs that we're gonna play off of Mink Car. So. <laughs> That we're going to pick those uh, probably, but um, the uh, the the only reason that that Mint Car is you know became lost was because 
it was released on 9-11, which, which, you know, a lot of records are released actually on 9-11. There's only two big days a month that records are released, and 9-11 happened to be the first month, the first day in September that records were released. But um, what happened was the the very newly minted record label that we were on immediately uh, lost their funding. So it became... Uh, you know, they were out of business in less than two months after the record came out. So it just was not available at all for a, a long interval of time and, uh, you know, wouldn't even come out on iTunes because there was kind of like a rights knot surrounding it. Um, but what's weird is that it, in many ways, it was kind of designed to be this, uh, uh, you know, pop, uh, juggernaut. We worked with, you know, Adam Schlesinger from Fountains of Wayne on it. We worked with Clive Langer and Alan with Stanley, the producers we worked on Flood with. So it was like a reunion of that. Um, and it's, you know, it's got a lot of, you know, big peak moments. Like uh, it's a very pop kind of front loaded uh, album. Um, but it just inadvertently kind of, uh, you know, fell to this, this uh, you know, other historic event. Yeah, uh, something about Mink Car th- that I like so much is that that there are these kind of like it's a psycho album. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's crazy nuts. It's yeah. nuts. It's so cool though. It's like such you a chimed fun... in very quickly there. Yeah, yes, it's great. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> well, it's like I mean, I have I have listened to it recently, and it's like there's it doesn't it doesn't flow from like uh, one into one kind of song into another like kind of song ever you know so it's it's like here's the electronica song here's the super loud rock song here's the really quiet kind of you know percussive ballady song it's 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 very it's it's a very it's a real uh uh i mean we're just kind of you know bouncing off the guardrails of 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 the musical <laughs> highway yeah i'd love to hear about what's what's fun about kind of experimenting with those other genres because i think that there is some stuff on that that is not you know, there, there's dance pop, there's kind of like lounge music, there's some right. like... Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose some of it was, in fact, driven by the the producers that we work with. And and uh, we, you know, mostly wanted to do our own mental illness, you know, on our, you know, just like draw from our own completely not-so ideas. But um, uh, it really, we experienced this completely other flavor with, um, you know, Adam Schlesinger, uh had all sorts of, you know, I think he saw this was like an opportunity, like, because we were perfectly comfortable hanging out with him by the time of this um, uh, recording. And uh, so he could say, well, let's take this song and make it into this completely other thing. And, right, right. You know, like a song like Another First Kiss is like a, a kind of an interesting example of like Adam really having at it. Like, uh, you know, we had recorded a live version of the song um that's essentially just our kind of regular power pop way of approaching a song and it you know to us it's like oh that's kind of like that's what a pop song is you know that's and uh and you know he's you know he's in a he's in a kind of power pop band himself so i thought you you would think he would just go like you know good job but instead he was like (laughs) he he was he actually was like you you know you could make this a much like a much more interesting uh, you know, kind of a ba- like a ballad song, and it was just like, oh, okay. Other people were too sentimental and always worrying about their hair. 
And, uh, you know, similarly with uh, um, Man is So Loud in Here, you know, Adam just had this whole other take on it, which was to really uh, take, you know, the idea that's inside the lyric of the song, which is about uh, being kind of inside a, a really oppressive disco area, and then turn that into, like, the actual music. I mean, it's sort of meta. It's like that's the music that the song is made of is yeah. the like is the like get out get out get out disco <laughs> you know sound and <laughs> it, i think it's pretty effective but it's like it was definitely uh seemed like a hard left turn Yeah, when I would say with those two songs, he was pulling out something that we wouldn't have tried to do and maybe have been able to do on our own. So so we were really, this is like the actual value of getting another person in to produce. It's like he came up with some truly different stuff. And and Clive and Alan, who we'd worked with already, I think mainly they they wanted to just do the thing they'd done on Flood, which is to bring out, you know, accentuate the... Uh, the stuff they thought was cool. Um, so I mean, I specifically remember this with doing vocals with them um, on Mink Car was that they were more demanding of us than we probably would ordinarily have been. We were we were the normal amount of a demanding with ourselves, and then they were adding on to that by going, "Well, it could be better, you know, like do try this again, only more, more, more good, you know." <laughs> So that so that I remember all that process pretty well because we worked with him in London, right? Yeah. And then we were working with Adam in New York, and it was a it was a multi you know it was like a multi studio project. Well, um, I mean, just circling back to the the whole thing of like you know working with Clive and, and Alan in the first place. Like Clive and Alan are like were these big hit maker guys. They did like Madness and the Dexius Midnight Runners, Come On Eileen, which was kind of like the first unplugged kind of recording. And they did Morrissey albums. And I'm trying to think, oh, they did uh, Dancing in the Streets with Mick Jagger and David Bowie. And and they, they had many, they had tons of hits. They were literally the biggest producers of the year, the first year we worked with them. And the record company was very into the idea of us getting together with them for obvious reasons. But what was so great is like how generous they were with like all the sort of trade secrets of how to make recordings because you know we had only worked in eight track studios before then and that was and suddenly we're in these like enormous rooms with all this stuff and they just they just you know sh they really they really uh, welcomed us as peers, which we certainly weren't in some ultimate way. But, um, but like they, you know, I just felt like we were in this crazy two month long masterclass in how to make great sounding records. And uh, it, it was just, it was fantastic. Have you guys heard the crust punk version of Anna Ng? No, I don't. I don't think so. No, no, it's really good. It really works. It totally well, works. Well, you have to back up just a, for a little bit for the old guys here. Like, what is crust punk? The ba the band is called Star F***ing Hipsters. Uh, they are like good. a. Fat, I'm looking forward to hearing that on the radio. Fat yeah. Records band. Uh, uh huh. And it's got a lot of like guttural metal screaming, and it totally f***ing works. It, it's cool. Really good. Too. Make a hole with a gun, but 
<laughs> anyway, you 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 get it. You get it. Yeah, My yeah, point yeah. is that it, it that it works. They might be giants rocks. Anyway. Lovely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they might be giants. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us on Bullseye. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks for having us. They might be giants. Their newest project book drops November 12th. You can get it on their website right now. We'll have a link to it on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. Thanks to Jordan Morris for conducting the interview. Jordan is also the co-host of my comedy podcast and his, Jordan Jesse Go. Jordan is a comedy writer and an author. His latest book is a graphic novel called Bubble. It's a science fiction comedy where people get paid through an app to hunt monsters. It is funny, weird, and very brilliant, in my opinion. Not biased. If you have a sci-fi fan or a comedy fan in your family, consider your holiday shopping over. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the home's of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. In my neighborhood, many houses have dragon fruit plants trellised across their front yards. They are these extraordinary long cactusy things, and they grow the incredible, almost science fiction fantasy-ish dragon fruits on them and those dragon fruits are starting to turn red and come ripe and i'm hoping i can scam a few from a neighbor maybe they want some of the grapefruits that grow in my backyard our show is produced by speaking into microphones our senior producer is kevin ferguson our producer is jesus ambrosio production fellows at maximum fun are richard roby and valerie moffett we get help from casey o'brien our interstitial music is by dan wally also known as djw Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's recorded by the group The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it with us. You can also keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post our interviews in all those places. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.